0: Hey everyone welcome to this very special episode of jeff talk and this one's going to be a bit of a 2019 roundup over the past year i've gotten so many questions from you guys so i'm going to spend a little bit of today answering some of those top questions we got the broad gamut from very very technical scientific questions to questions based about lifestyle my best practices and my best practical advices but before getting the questions i also want to give a quick shout and highlight to the community, and how far we've come since the beginning of 2019. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that at the end of the program, but definitely do wanna give a shout out to my team, Zill, my producer, where we've crossed 30,000 subscribers and three million plays. Those are some big numbers. I wanna reflect a little bit more about that. But before going into that, let's dive into the questions. Christine asks, I'm a 58-year-old female athlete. I mostly follow a low-carb, high-fat diet, leaning closer towards carnivore. I had a bike accident in August and have a rotator cuff tear. I'm hoping for healing without surgery. I also had a broken wrist and one surgery is enough. I'm wondering if fasting and ketosis would help in the healing of my injury, potentially through stem cells. Are you aware of anyone researching this? This is a good question and it's pretty deep and nuanced here. I do wanna disclaim and say I'm not a medical doctor and I don't give medical advice. That said, I care about the literature and I do have my interpretation on what the science and evidence says today. So what we do know about fasting and what we do know about ketosis and ketones is that fasting and ketosis definitely improve inflammatory markers. And in the healing process, controlling and mediating inflammation is an important factor in terms of recovery. In the literature, there's been some studies on animal models with skin healing. And there's some promising data on that front. Your idea of using ketosis or fasting to improve healing has some preliminary evidence to suggest that there might be something there. But on the other hand, you don't want to risk malnutrition and not giving your body the nutrition it needs to actually rebuild the tissue. Another data point that might be under consideration here is that people have started looking at diets going into surgery. And there's been interesting debate and discussion around you want to go into surgeries fasted versus being fed into a surgery. And it seems like there is data suggesting that going to surgery fasted might be beneficial for recovery. My ultimate takeaway here is that you got to be careful balancing the benefits of fasting while also making sure you're not starving your body of the building materials that actually recover. Again, fasting is a stressor and my fear here is that your body's already stressed with injury and you're adding and compounding stress by fasting and you definitely don't want to be overloading your system's ability to compensate and be resilient. You should consult a dietitian, nutritionist, and your doctor around optimizing a nutrition protocol best for you but my 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 balancing levers would be understanding the benefits potentially of having ketones in my system and through fasting and balancing that with having enough substrate to rebuild my muscle and not overly stressing my body. Okay, moving along. Carol asks, How can one's body that produces too much uric acid go carnivore when eating red meat increases uric acid? Typically, when people are concerned about uric acid and meat consumption, you're probably thinking about gout. And gout results from an abnormal buildup in the blood of uric acid. So it does make sense that you might have this concern. Now, Traditionally, and typically, gout has long been believed to result from a high intake of alcohol or animal protein. But newer data and some alternative hypotheses of why gout happens actually pinpoints metabolic syndrome as a likely primary cause. So there's two parts of the equation here. There's the ingestion of uric acid and then the turnover and excretion of uric acid. So When we're talking about consumption of meat which contains uric acid well that's one half of the equation the second half is how much can you excrete and dump all that extra uric acid and that's where the metabolic syndrome story comes into play so new data suggests that elevated insulin levels reduces the body's ability to clear uric acid so if you have insulin resistance and therefore higher facet insulin levels, and just more ambient insulin hanging around, that inhibits your body and your kidney to clear out that uric acid. There's also emerging data suggesting that fructose, a form of sugar, also inhibits kidney and liver function, especially on the excretion of uric acid. So my main takeaway here is that, look, you need to control the inputs and also the output of uric acid. So I think it is sensible to potentially consider lowering consumption of alcohol primarily, and then red meat if that's especially of concern. But don't think, don't forget about the second half, which is the excretion of uric acid. So bringing down those insulin levels by reducing carbohydrate consumption might be able to reverse some of that high ambient insulin, which would then allow your kidney to flush out the uric acid more efficiently. You know, I'm not dogmatic on uh, on promoting the carnivore diet or not, or red meat consumption or not. I think the question is understanding how all these factors interplay into the end condition. And don't forget about metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance as an important part to understand and attack in addition to the consumption of red meat or alcohol. So I'll consider all the possible options to make sure that you're healthy. Sidkey asks. I've been hearing increasingly more about the ill effects of insulin and glucose spikes. I'd be really interested in a drill down on this topic, that is the health consequences of spikes. That's a really good question. We often talk about these spikes of insulin and glucose, but why is that even bad? Well, let's break down why these might not be optimal for your body. You want to think about your body always wanting to maintain balance. The usual state of one's body is to be in homeostasis or in equilibrium. So when you have a big bolus or a big load of sugar, that increases the amount of blood glucose flowing around your bloodstream. What is a nat- body's natural response? Well, there shouldn't be that much sugar floating around ambiently if it's not being used. So it needs to be pulled down into the cells where it can be stored or utilized. And that's where insulin comes in. Insulin is the hormone that brings the sugar or the glucose into cells. Why is having a lot of ambient glucose bad? There's two main mechanisms of why ambient high blood sugar levels could be bad. Primary mechanism number one is the production of advanced glycation end products. When you have all this sugar floating around in your blood vessels, well, that starts binding. That sugar actually gets bound to proteins and other tissue. And these advanced glycation end products are associated with atherosclerosis, other oxidative damage. So you're building up damage with these sugars being bound to proteins. And that causes inflammation and is associated with a number of different chronic diseases. So by having more and more free floating sugar being bound to things that it shouldn't be bound to, that's a risk, a risky Uh, state to be in. Think about hemoglobin A1c. This is usually a marker associated with how much sugar is being bound to hemoglobin, which is your red blood cells. And that's something that's associated with type 2 diabetes. So minimizing the ambient sugar load minimizes hemoglobin A1c. And it's a very similar analogy towards advanced glycation end products. If you have less sugars to be bound freely, uh, you produce less of these bad Oxidative inflammatory substances floating around in your blood, and then mechanism two is the insulin response. So if you have really high blood sugar uh, and these spikes, your body again compensates by producing insulin or releasing insulin from your pancreas to then bring that sugar back down. And this goes into the insulin resistance story, where if you have so much glucose and then so much insulin release all the time. Your body builds an insulin resistance or a tolerance so that you need more and more insulin to have the same response to bring the sugar back down. And of course, when you have perpetually high insulin, that leads to all the downstream negative effects of having high insulin, which is the fat storage hormone. It likely inhibits lipolysis or fat burning. There's a whole cascade of downstream side effects that you don't necessarily want to have. So to answer your question directly, high blood sugar requires an equally aggressive response in the body and if you do this a lot it builds up resistance from the insulin perspective and of course from the advanced glycation end products perspective you want to minimize how much of these glycation end products you have floating around ambiently damaging your tissue. Tor asks, I'm trying to get into dietary ketosis because I want to leave my insulin levels low due to the downsides of having those levels high at all times. But what if I produce too much ketones Will my insulin levels rise at the same levels as having a high glycemic meal? I've read that insulin will rise when the level of ketones get too high to inhibit ketogenesis. I'm also an ultra runner and in a need of a lot of energy. So maybe there's no reasons to be afraid of getting too much ketones. This is a good question that touches on a number of interesting nuances and facets of physiology. Just like the previous question, talking about the body trying to maintain equilibrium and homeostasis, the same thing holds for ketones and ketogenesis, the production of ketones. So let's step back and think about what's going on in the body. When we are in a carb restriction and we're producing ketones from our fat stores, well, that happens because we need to Reshift and rebalance our overall energy requirements to the amount of available substrates. So, ketones rise and they're produced. And as ketones get escalated, there's less and less demand for more and more ketones to be produced. And it tends to plateau at a certain level. Now, where diabetic ketoacidosis becomes a concern is for certain patients or people with uh, type 1 diabetes, where they don't have an insulin response. So what happens in that edge case is that ketone production runs unchecked where you get more and more and more and more ketones because there's no insulin feedback loop that stops production of ketones insulin doesn't actually kick up when you have and reach a ketone threshold it's actually that there's a baseline insulin load that uh, deals with uh, gluconeogenesis and ambient levels of sugar, so there's always gonna be some ambient insulin level, and across some threshold of ketones, uh, that insulin and ketone level balances out, so there's that natural plateau. So I wouldn't worry about kicking up insulin by eating a ketogenic diet, uh, it, it, the, the the response that stops the ketone production is really just that ambient insulin load that it currently exists. Look, if you're an ultra runner, you're probably quite aerobically fit because you're spending so much energy running 30, 40, 50 miles, 100 miles, I'm not sure how long you're running here. I would be more concerned around getting the fueling done right. And of course, one can use something like ketone esters to get ketones directly. Of course, someone can use More, you know, fat bombs or peanut butters or nut butters to fuel, or it could use more of a glucose load like a gel or a carb drink. For me personally, and through conversations with some of the most elite ultra runners and distance runners, you'd probably want to be potentially combining more of the carbohydrates and the ketone esters at the same time as a fueling strategy. Uh, and, and, and maybe a little bit of fat, but again, fat, takes a a little bit more slower acting than carbs alone or ketone esters alone. I I think you can't really go wrong with a combination of all three to get the maximal availability of substrate going all at the same time. The GTE channel writes in, in response to our research roundup episode where I analyzed two studies about our ketone ester helping control glycemic response. The GTE channel asks, how does this compare to apple cider vinegar being used pre-meal? I would love to use your ketone ester at some point for sport performance reasons, but for now, I'm not able to afford it. This is an especially insightful question because I think it hits at one of the core recommendations of what nutrition should be about, which is what one should be eating and what can one do to reduce the potential negative side effects of certain types of meal. And again, when you're having a high glycemic response meal, reducing or mediating that glycemic response is likely a good thing. As you know from that research roundup video, the ketone ester has pretty great results in terms of reducing the glycemic response. Between 11 to 15, 16% reduction in area under the curve of the glucose response and then bumps up the insulin sensitivity markers uh, as well. So the data with apple cider vinegar or ACV is actually pretty decent. It's been something that I, our team has been looking at. One of the studies I really like is this 2015 paper it's titled Vinegar Consumption Increases Insulin-Stimulated Glucose Uptake by the Forearm Muscle in Humans with Type 2 Diabetes. So in this particular study, uh, they had a vinegar drink versus a placebo drink before a mixed meal. And the glucose AUC actually dropped with the vinegar group. Uh, the drop isn't as stark and is as impressive as a ketone ester, but the one curve that I was looking at showed about a five, six percent drop, which is, again, pretty solid. Like, if I am worried about glycemic response, if I have type 2 diabetes, I'd consider uh, looking at everything that could potentially control my blood glucose response. I think this is actually novel research. I don't know if anyone has actually done an experiment. If you have vinegar plus ketone esters, are you getting a synergistic and even boosted effect of controlling blood sugar? So that's some science to be done, but it's interesting to look at the mechanisms of why people think that vinegar works here. And it is very similar to some of the reasons that people think ketone esters work. There's been some discussion that it improves insulin action, improves insulin sensitivity, Another reason that I've seen articulated is that the vinegar reduces the speed of gastric emptying. And what that means is that it slows down uh, how often and, and the rate in which your stomach empties. So if you're giving your body more time to dispose of glucose, that might be helpful. There's probably a number of mechanisms all happening at the same time. So it's not very clear what is the dominant feature here. But definitely an area of research to keep our eyes on. Alright, this question comes from SF Golfer in response to our Facet versus Fed Exercise Research Roundup episode. He writes, very informative video and answered most of my questions. But for sports that require a moderate level of endurance and quick bursts of explosiveness, such as tennis and basketball, what do you recommend? I have been searching for such studies for a while but have not found any. You're exactly right. In terms of sports specific studies, being published in peer review, that's just not how sports science or physiology is typically done. They typically base it on much more quantitative sports that are much more easily tracked than something that's as dynamic and as technique-based as like a tennis or a basketball. But that aside, I think the main takeaway from that research roundup video really holds to be the same. You should understand what is the exercise for. Is your bout for a competition? which requires maximal performance, or is this about for training? Are you trying to just train and get your metabolism more efficient or metabolically more flexible or adapted? The answer for any activity, whether that's powerlifting or endurance activity and anything in between, if you are racing or competing in a competition and it's life or death or gold medal or uh, loser, eat before the competition. Like you wanna have the maximal availability of substrate before any competition. Now, if you are training and you want to challenge and have increased adaptation for your body, then you can consider fasted training. And that was like I think the main point of the fasted versus fed video. If you're looking for adaptation for training or looking to really shift and stress your metabolism for weight loss, for example, then you can start thinking about fasting before exercise. I think regardless of whether it's moderate, anaerobic, super aerobic, the whole point of doing fasted training is to increase fat loss, which is for body composition or metabolic syndrome, uh, correction use cases, or you want to get more adaptation and more training, make your training harder. So when you are actually fed for your competition the actual bout of the competition is a lot easier. In response to a recent research roundup video where I analyzed an MIT study that found that ketone bodies improved intestinal stem cell function, Rob Lovegreen asks, this is amazing, a science-backed way to heal the gut faster through increased ketone production? Assuming it works the same in humans, I'm wondering if so many anecdotal reports of improved health by people on a ketogenic or carnivore diet could actually be because of increased stem cell production systemically. A couple housekeeping items to make sure that the question is properly stated so I can be as accurate as possible here. I believe in the MIT study, ketone bodies themselves induce improved stem cell production, not ketone production itself. So a difference between ketosis or the presence of BHB or ketone bodies versus the production, the ketogenesis or production of ketone bodies. So that opens the door that you can have something like an exogenous ketone or a ketone ester drink to get the benefit of the stem cell production without having to do carb restriction. Is the reason why people have these great reports about carnivore and keto based on the mechanism of stem cells. Possibly, I think that's definitely going to play a role here. But my sense of the main dominant reason of what's happening, especially with the carnivore diet, is that it's a very, very strict, rigorous elimination diet. And my understanding, speaking to those that are seeing really good benefits from the carnivore diet, like Michaela Peterson, is that there's typically some autoimmune or allergic reaction to things In found in in plant uh, materials, maybe compounds like lectins that cause leaky gut, uh, different anti-nutrients that might be found in uh, certain types of vegetables. But I think you are definitely right to say that there's likely some stem cell production impact from having the presence of ketones that would be impactful for overall health. And the the edge and, and the cutting edge of what ketones can be doing is really just exploding there's exciting data around ketones themselves being HDAC inhibitors, which is also potentially be useful for longevity, uh, they have impacts on the sirtuins, uh, so there's a lot of different things that are happening with ketones that is just literally at the bleeding edge of science. Uh, so again, much more to learn here and stay tuned in the space. Willie Liam asks, I'd love to have the chance to talk with you about the concept of pulsing. Reason is that I'm not convinced that exposure to news, work, etc. by definition results in anxiety or worry. With some practice and work, it is entirely possible to be perfectly aware of all the problems of the world, all the stresses of work, but experience no actual anxiety over it instead simply feeling motivated to get to work on whatever problem task is at hand. So sure, having time to unplug, recharge, recreate is good and healthy, but I wouldn't think of it as a binary proposition. Work news equals anxiety versus time off weight equals relaxation. Thanks for asking this question because it lets me put on my philosopher hat a little bit and explore and unpack my thinking and what I mean by pulsing. You're absolutely right that one can adapt and get accustomed and build resilience to more mundane stressors, things like work stress, things like things happening around the news. And to me, that's the adaptation around building mastery. Mastery to me means that you can build and process more and more problems without having that stress response. As you build mastery, the level of ambient stress you can sustain goes higher and higher. But I would challenge on the fact that you likely need enough stimulus to produce anxiety and the stress to progressively overload and be able to improve and learn. That there's this Yerkes-Dodson curve in psychology showing that if you're understimulated, you don't have optimal performance. If you're overly stimulated, you don't have optimal performance. You want to have the right level of stimulus, and the right level of ease to be in your peak performance or, and, and, and that's what people think drives flow state, right? If it's too easy, you're not in flow. If it's too hard, you're not in flow. The perfect balance of ease and mastery and stress and stimulus, that's where you have flow states. So I don't think it's realistically possible to expect that all of life's stress can perfectly be at that Yerx Dodson peak, right? Like things happen to you, environment happens to you, politics happens around you, your boss is really mean to you. You don't control that. All of us are just oscillating between periods of easy, easy mode, and then overly stressed. I think my main point with talking about pulsing is that we should try to induce parameters and and controls around that pulse, right? Certain phases of your life, certain phases of your career, certain time slots, you want to be dialing up. The stress and anxiety, so you can progressively overload, be stressed out, be anxious, but learn, improve, get better, build mastery. And you probably want to bake in times where you want to lean more towards the relaxation or recovery side. Uh, It's not going to be perfect, so that's why I think having this notion, this pre-defined parameter that you have, focuses of push and pull, uh, challenge and relax, probably makes sense to pace yourself. I mean, I think in the ideal world. Uh, And I think this is an interesting thought experiment. What if you could just maintain peak flow state in perpetuity? Maybe that is optimal. Maybe you can find yourself there all the time. I just don't think that's realistic or should be expected. I think because there's oscillations around the world, probably having this notion of giving yourself some relaxation and push seems to make a lot of sense. And again, uh, when we're talking about the psychological aspects of mastery. It's a pretty narrow version of the broader notion of pulsing, which I think has much more uh, anthropological or historical data uh, in terms of nutrition, exercise, feasts, famines, seasons, uh, different aspects of our life, our careers. There are cycles to our circadian rhythm, there are cycles to our seasons, uh, and that probably makes sense in terms of cycles in our performance versus recovery physically, right? Working out, training, peaking for competition and recovering. Uh, you could probably think the same thing for nutrition, uh, cycling in and out of ketosis, which is something that I personally do. I think the notion around pulsing is more of a philosophical framework to think about incorporating into one's personal choices and lifestyle rather than some magic buzzword or magic prescription that you should overload in everything that you do. Eric Carter wonders, I've been trying to get a continuous glucose monitor, but every company I inquire with tells me that I'm not eligible for one because I need to be diabetic or pre-diabetic. That seems so backwards to me. I have a family history of diabetes and even my 23andMe test tells me that I'm at an increased risk. Why should I have to get the disease before being eligible to use the device that could have helped me monitor my blood glucose patterns in order to avoid getting the disease in the first place? So frustrating. I 100% agree with you. It makes no logical sense. In fact, it seems so archaic and medieval that one should get a disease before one can get access to a tool that could have very much well prevented the disease in the first place. I actually talked quite a bit about this in a recent Jeff talk titled What No Politician Is Saying About Healthcare. And it talks about the sense and the notion that Although our frontline medical doctors are trying their best to fight disease, chronic disease at the frontline, we're not properly addressing preventative health and lifestyle that might prevent the chronic disease in the first place. And I consider diabetes, high blood sugar as a chronic lifestyle-driven disease. But let's not get too disappointed or too frustrated. I know many medical doctors many folks in the healthcare system today that are actively fighting against this. So there's been a number of doctors that have been on this podcast, you can look them up, that prescribe CGMs or continuous glucose monitors even to healthy people. And again, typically they might write in their script that this is for pre-diabetes or pre-pre-diabetes. I think there are certain doctors that are more forward-leaning, that understand the literature, that might be more willing to work with you personally to get you access to a CGM. But hopefully, in the overall healthcare systems, we change the culture. Uh, So this isn't something that needs to be a special case. This might be something that's uh, ubiquitous to all of us. Um, And I think that's honestly where the world is going to go. Uh, One line I always like to say is that, just like the internet has decentralized information, you look at cryptocurrencies decentralizing uh, financial technologies. You see uh, citizen scientists, biohackers, folks that care about health and wellness decentralizing what used to be traditional healthcare. care. And I think that's empowering folks like me, like you, like our listeners, like our community to really understand our own health and take self-responsibility in conjunction with good doctors and good frontline practitioners to help us reach our own health goals. And in this vision of what I have of the future of healthcare, we should be getting access to our health data. Uh, it just it seems, again, quite archaic, quite medieval that we don't have an understanding of our blood sugar levels in response to certain types of food. Um, That, I think, in 20, 50 years will just be part of our data stream. Just like we now can get our heart rate variability or our heart rate through, you know, literally a a piece of jewelry. I wouldn't be surprised that we have that same kind of form factor deliver blood sugar data, blood ketone data. Mm -hmm. Now, some practical tips for you. I do know that at some point, you could just buy these things on eBay. I, I, you know, when I first was experimenting with this, you know, three, four, five years ago, that's actually what I did. Uh, I, my producer you know, recently told me that they might have shut down that loophole. Again, you might be able to buy things on the line. Uh, find out there if you want to go direct, but also talk to docs. I know, again, look at the doctors that have been on our program. Many of them will prescribe you a CGM and help you work through that. CCC asks, So what do you think a standard food pyramid should look like? I'm not even convinced that a pyramid is the right metaphor to look at this question. So what has worked really well for me, and you can take this as a template for yourself, uh, is this model of concentric circles. Uh, So ring one is Are like my staples and then you have concentric rings that are more like options or variations or little fun things to add if you are doing certain activities or increasing your activity load or reducing activity load so for me ring one is meat and fish i am a non-discriminatory consumer of animals and fish so i love the i love my beef i love my seafood i love my tuna crab scallops clams like my chicken, my pork, my lamb. And I think those are really good sources of both protein and fat. I'd also look at incorporating other sources of healthy fat from vegetables like avocado or coconuts. And let's not forget things like leafy greens for fibers and and, and, and polyphenols. I'd also consider adding in to ring one, full fat yogurts and kimchi Again, these are low glycemic response foods, but also have that healthy punch and dose of probiotics. Maybe throw in some dairy products like cheese and milk. Uh, And that that kind of describes what I think is the core of my personal diet. So generally low carb, generally low glycemic response uh, as central ring one. For ring two, I like to throw in fruits. There's some good data around berries and blueberries, for example. Some of the polyphenols found in fruits like blueberries have been shown to be beneficial for neurological health as well as cardiovascular health. So, uh, not afraid to add in berries, especially if I'm doing a lot more and uh, aggressive workouts. Uh, I don't try to avoid. I like to throw in complex starches from things like sweet potatoes. Again, if I'm doing a lot more endurance or physical activity. I think the notion of fruits especially in the keto community is somewhat controversial given that some fruits like say a banana or a watermelon are just like sugar bombs. So I would be a little bit more reserved around just eating really, really high glycemic fruits But am I dogmatic and allergic to fruits? No, I think they could play a a role in a a nice diet and hence why these are found in ring two for me. And to maybe give you a curveball, one of my ideas of how the nutrition space can unfold is that what if ketones, like ketone esters, could be kind of ring three. Uh, Maybe what if ketone esters could be 10, 5, 10, 15% of... A daily uh, diet. That could be an interesting addition where you have a fourth macronutrient play into the overall dietary composition of of a healthy diet. There needs to be a lot more research to best understand how to fit ketones and the amount and the timing. I think there's been some indication of how to best use it potentially before a high glycemic response meal. Uh, but some work to be done here but I'm excited about the potential of having ketones as a part of a daily healthy diet And then lastly what not to eat I try to refi- I, I try to avoid as much as possible refined sugars, trans fats and processed seed oils. I try to stay away from those things uh, Those seem to be pretty easy targets of, of critique in the nutrition circles today. What if we lived in a world where, maybe 10-15% of your calories came from ketones as opposed to just fat, protein, carbohydrate. Uh, That might be super interesting because as we previously talked about, ketones prevent and improve the glycemic response. That could be interesting as we're figuring out an optimal diet. And they're a really efficient fuel source that doesn't require insulin and crosses the blood-brain barrier. So to say that I know exactly how to best use ketones in a daily diet. I have some best guesses, probably taking it before uh, meals to control my glucose response, Uh, probably using it before certain uh, uh, athletic activities, probably using it before maybe sleep or in lieu of coffee. I think those would be some of the ways I'd be considering adding ketones into my diet. So the food pyramid's probably a nice little mainstay that gets us thinking about how to concentrate and focus where should we should uh, be focusing our attention for what foods to eat, but probably is not a useful model going into the future. I think our understanding of nutrition is a lot more nuanced now. Uh, so my best stab at it at this point is thinking about it in concentric rings. Let me know what you think. I'd love to continue improving this model. Jessica N asks, How long does it take for the ketone esters to be depleted before glycogen is utilized? Do the amount of esters require a certain amount of fat grams to be ingested to break the ester bonds for utilization? And if so, how long before or after the supplement is ingested? Okay, there's a handful of questions here and I'll handle them one at a time. So the first question is, how long does it take to deplete or use up ketone esters before you dip back into glycogen? So to answer this question, I need to give you a little bit of background information, which is that metabolism is never that binary. When people are in a fat burning mode versus a carb burning mode, they're never really burning 100% of one substrate. There's so much variance on tissue specificity, right, like the leg muscles burning a different mix of substrate than the heart, than the brain, and again, the mix of substrate. So. It's never one or the other, it's always a blend of substrates being metabolized at any given time. So you're burning a mix of fatty acids and glucose uh, at any given intensity of exercise. And you primarily go from dominantly on fat and more and more carbohydrate as you get more and more intense uh, exercise. So that's a spectrum that we're playing in. It's not just fat and then sugar. It's a spectrum. It's a blend, always. Now, now that we've defined what's actually happening in metabolism, um, how do ketone esters play in? Well, ketone esters just serve as a new part of this overall substrate blend. Now, ketones plays about 10 to 20% of the overall utilization mix. So you don't just burn through ketones and then go back in the glycogen. It's that you preserve or spare glycogen as you have this new other substrate coming from ketones. So the better way to answer the question is that you don't just burn through ketones and then switch to glycogen. You're adding an additional fuel substrate that reduces the amount of glycogen that is burnt over time. Now to answer maybe what you're trying to ask which is that is there some like buffer range where you have ketones elevating your system? Uh, the answer is yes. And it depends on how heavy you're working. The more you work, the more aggressive that you work, the quicker that you'll use up the ketone ester. You typically burn through ketone ester, if you're working very, very close to maximal uh, one to two to three hours, so it gets burnt more quickly. If you're at rest, ketones can stay high for four or five hours. So the more you work, the faster you burn through and then you have to dip in the glycogen or or fat. um, And vice versa, the less you work, the longer ketone stays up. Uh, Now to answer the second part and third part of the question. Do you need fat with ketone esters to break the ester bond? Answer is no. Uh, You do not need to eat fat with ketone esters to properly use the ketones. That's the cool part of the ketone ester technology you can just eat the ketones directly in a drink form and get ketones in your blood. And how does this happen? Well, uh, you write that there's an ester bond in the ketone ester, but that ester bond is broken through gut esterases. So our normal digestion processes have a lot of esterases that break all sorts of esters. Uh, A lot of organic compounds, a lot of foods have esters in them. And it's a very natural, simple process for these gut esterases to cleave the ketone ester where you get that BHB delivered into your system. No fat is required. The natural digestion process with gut esterases handles that problem for you. The last part of the question is uh, how quickly are these ketones delivered? Ketones are delivered very, very quickly. You can detect the ketones in your blood in minutes. The peak is typically in one hour. But we have a number of videos on this youtube channel or on this podcast where i literally demo this in front of you where i'll have a drink uh, of ketone esters but before i have that drink i test my blood ketones very very low have a drink of ketone esters in 30 45 60 minutes i'll have very very high ketone levels i'll get up to four five six millimole ketones within an hour so these ketones are delivered very very quickly and very very rapidly Now that wraps all the questions I'm gonna be answering today. Keep your questions coming. It's really fun to be able to engage and respond and explore these topics. Um, Nutrition science is constantly evolving. Some of the things that I've stated and answered are probably gonna be wrong and that's okay because science is about setting hypotheses, collecting evidence, and correcting the hypotheses to match the data and evidence. So this is just part of science and uh, It's fun to be alongside you exploring, understanding how our bodies work and how the environment works and how the world works. So it's really been an honor to to take this journey with all of you guys. As reference in the beginning of the video, I do want to take a little bit of time to just shout out the key wins of 2019 here. I mean, we went from a pretty tight-knit small community to have 30,000 plus of you guys tuning in regularly that's a small city. That's incredible. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your support. I'm going to speak on behalf of my producer Zilla Lonin. He's helping you know, being the, the guy behind the scenes, helping coordinate guests, helping coordinate topics. We both really appreciate your support of our program and our hard work here. Some of the cool things that we did this year were the Jeff talks and the research roundups. I'd love to have more opportunities to pontificate and think about new philosophical frameworks. I think the video about why I think politicians aren't really addressing the core issues of healthcare was a really fun one to discuss with you guys. There's things that you want to hear me uh, research and talk about. Please send those topics in. Those are always fun for me to think about. And on the research roundup side, that's been something that was also new this year, where I spent time with Our research lead, Dr. Lat Mansour, really diving down and unpacking some of the most interesting research being published in peer review today. Uh, If there's papers that you'd like us to break down, again, please send those uh, our way. And lastly, we wouldn't be here without good conversations without really cool people. I think I w- there's a number of folks I wanna just give quick shout outs to and also point you to them uh, in terms of really fun conversations. Michaela Peterson, Dr. Paolo Saladino, very interesting conversations around the carnivore diet. In terms of super elite high end athletes, uh, Roxanne Vogel who, uh, who did the quickest ascent and descent of Mount Everest. Super fun conversation as well as uh previous Ironman world champion, Pete Jacobs. Super interesting conversations around the mindset, the training, the thoughtfulness of making world records or championship efforts. I've also really enjoyed talking to leading academics in the space. Of course, we had Professor Kieran Clark from Oxford talk about the impact of ketone Esters in the Tour de France but also really enjoyed my conversations with Professor David Sinclair, Professor Tim Noakes, and Professor Keith Barr, who are really world-class experts in their area of physiology, genetics, anatomy. Almost forgot to shout out Professor Benjamin Bickman as well, that was a really fun episode and it was one of our most popular episodes, really diving into the data around insulin resistance and ketogenic diets and all of that. I also wanna shout out a couple folks that are in the community, Rita Venter, Travis Statum. They're some of the leading community organizers behind this movement around KJ diet, carnivore, but probably just thinking about nutrition in a, in a serious way. This, you guys have literally given me a platform or get to call part of my day job, uh, learning and speaking with some of the coolest people in the world. So thank you so much for that opportunity. This, all right, this wraps up this week's Jeff Talk. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, I look forward to talking with you in 2020. Until then, we're always available. Love to hear from you. DM, Twitter, at us, Instagram us at Jeffrey Wu or at HVMN, Uh, email us at podcast at HVMN.com. As always, subscribe, share, like, give a positive review. Those are always super helpful. See you in 2020.